Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 23 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about how technology transforming how we express our love and intimacy, how it changed our definition of infidelity. And we're going to explore the topic of sexting, dating, and mating using internet and technology. Before I get there, I wanted to thank those of you who write us honest review on iTunes. And it's so helpful for me to see uh, what do you guys find helpful? What do you want to learn more about? and I want to keep this show relevant. One of the feedback I got was that many of you guys wanted to know about internet infidelity and that's why we have this topic today. And keep in mind for the month of June, if you write us an honest review, take an image of it and email it to Dr. Moali at sexologypodcast.com. I'll email you the $5 Amazon gift card. I am super excited for our guest today. She's a well-known researcher and author in this area. Later, I'm going to talk to Dr. Catherine Hertline. Dr. Hertline is a professor and program director of the Marriage and Family Program at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She received her Master's in Marriage and Family Therapy from Purdue University and her doctorate in human development with a specialization in marriage and family therapy from Virginia Tech. She's a globally recognized researcher studying sexuality, technology, and its effects on couples. 
As she examines the role of technology in couple and family life, Dr. Hardline has developed the first multi-theoretical model on this issue. In addition to technology and relationship, Hardline's other area of expertise include infidelity, sexuality, high-risk sexual behavior, child and adolescent therapy, and cyber issues in couple and family therapy. Dr. Hardline has co-authored eight books, including Handbook for the Clinical Treatment of Infidelity, The Therapist's Notebook for Family Healthcare, Handbook for the Treatment of Infidelity, Systematic Sex Therapy, A Clinician's Guide to Systematic Sex Therapy, the last version of which won the 2017 ASECT Book Award. She's the best. I love that book. She has published more than 60 articles in the notable journals in her field, contributed over 40 chapters to books, and serves on the editorial boards of several academic journals. She was recently appointed as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Couple and Relationship Therapy. She has also won several awards for her teaching, mentorship, and work in the field of sexuality research, including the Integrated Approaches to Sex Therapy Award through ASEC. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Catherine Hertline. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Catherine Hertline in our show today. Catherine, welcome to our show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. It's absolutely an honor and pleasure. And I was just reading your accolade a few minutes ago. And wow, you've been very active in this field. I, I keep busy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and congratulations. I just heard that your book, Systematic Sex Therapy, got an award for 2016-17, actually, ASEC yes. Award. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. We were absolutely honored to have received that award. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a wonderful, like prestigious award. And I read the book. It was fantastic. And I highly recommend that if people are and clinicians who are listening to this show, that might be helpful for them. Thank you. Yeah, we, we had fun writing it. I, I think the updated version is much better than the original version in terms of the way in which we attend to different populations and incorporating some of the updated literature. So definitely, um, it might be a good book to pick up. Absolutely. I make sure I put a link to the show notes. So if people are interested, they would be able to find it. Great. Thank you so much. Of course. And I was like looking into number of you published so many different articles. And I know yes, <laughs> you. I, I just saw 60 articles and you're quite young. So <laughs> congratulations yeah. and all your Thank achievements. You. And I know one of your area of expertise is on the impact of internet and technologies and relationship yes. and human behaviors. So I thought that would be a good topic for us to explore a little yeah, bit. Isn't that quite the topic today? <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And such a broad topic. So I, I thought I'm, I will try to be kind of more focused. But again, uh, forgive me if I'm going to ask some uh, random questions as well. 
Sure. So I'm going to go start with kind of asking about what is the effect has an internet had on our sex lives? How has it been impacting our sex lives? Well, it, it does a couple different things. It impacts it in really good ways because it gives couples opportunities to be able to maybe share sexual material or be able to connect sexually when they're not physically present with one another. So that's a good thing. A lot of couples tell us that it helps them to spice up their sexual relationship because you can use the information on the internet to be able to kind of augment what's happening in your relationship and to maybe give you different ideas about about your relationship. So those are some of the good things. Some of the things that are maybe more challenging is the fact that the internet is very accessible. And because it's very accessible, you have people who are able to maybe satisfy a sexual need without necessarily using their partner. And so that can be a little bit hurtful to the partner and can maybe be detrimental to the relationship. Another thing that seems to be happening is the use of porn, because that is so accessible we know that when people are watching porn independently, that seems to be a problem for the relationship. There seems to be lower levels of sexual satisfaction, reduced frequency in terms of sexual interaction, and lower levels of self-esteem in heterosexual couples, particularly for the female partner. Uh, when you're watching porn collaboratively, though, those outcomes don't seem to to come across. It seems to be better if couples are sharing that that porn. So that's one of the things that I think can be detrimental to couples if they don't know that. Absolutely. And I, I'm definitely agreeing with you that some couples are using it to get some ideas. I have many couples that are married in my uh, practice. They kind of look into the porns and other kind of material online to see how can they add to their sexual life, use getting ideas, things around that. But I'm very curious to a little bit learn more about the pornography. And you said so based on like with couples, I know that some of them they use it like while as a kind of foreplay or during their sex and they have no problems with that. What do you think is the impact of the porn and self-esteem? You said it's gonna uh, usually the result the studies shows that it reduces the self-esteem. What is the correlation there? A lot of it has to do with the comparison. Uh, the female partner often believes that the male partner wants her to do certain things that he's watching in the porn videos. And that actually isn't true. The other partner will tell you that that isn't true. But for some reason, that's what the female partner believes. And so she sort of thinks that she's not enough in those circumstances. I see. And the other thing I sometimes hear from some of my clients that they talk about how, so when they started seeing, watching porn, they were watching something that was close to what they liked. But then as they spent more time, it got, some of them, they say the images that they prefer now, it's more aggressive. It's like very different. And some of them, it's just kind of their concern about the, the progression of that. What is your experience in that area? Uh, so the research supports that for the most part. They said that when people are watching some of the aggressive porn, that becomes a little bit more problematic for the couple relationship because there might be, uh, I think some of the impacts are around communication, satisfaction, and p potentially even some sexual behaviors. That isn't true if you're, at least the research says, if you're watching the porn that's a little bit more vanilla and just kind of erotica type porn. Right. So actually one of the studies we're doing here at the university now is having couples actually come into the lab and watching porn together for 24 minutes 
for eight weeks. So they come in once a week, watch porn together, and we're measuring their outcomes in terms of communication and relational satisfaction and attachment to see if, and we're having them do the erotic porn as opposed to the aggressive porn and trying to control for that because we know the research about the aggressive porn being a little bit more problematic in terms of those outcomes. Oh, interesting. And what an yeah. interesting research study. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, this is my job. This is a really interesting place to be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. It's, yeah, it's very different than other dry, like, experimental psychologists. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And as far as, so you, one of the good outcomes you mentioned is just sometimes people, like, it can help couples when they're watching together, whether yeah. the, also it's somehow, it depends at least based on research, on the content. Yes, correct, correct. If you pull all those, all the different research projects together about it, that seems to be the issue. So, and, and actually, you know, to, to kind of wrap it back a little bit more to the internet, really anything involving the internet that becomes an independent activity is going to create more problems than if it's a shared activity. So porn is just one of those. If you're flirting with somebody online, that's an independent activity. That's going to be far worse for your relationship than it will be in terms of looking at if you're flirting with your partner together. Another thing that we're looking at is writing, we're writing, we're in the middle of an article on sexual dysfunctions and looking at how technology plays a role in sexual dysfunctions. And one of those things we talk about is the use of porn and whether people are getting to a place where they, like you said, they sort of gravitate towards something more that they like and their partner doesn't want to do that, then perhaps you end up with a secondary sexual dysfunction as a result of this kind of lack of communication around desire and what you're actually watching together. Interesting. And when you were talking about sexual dysfunction, you reminded me, one of my clients, he was sharing with me that his erectile dysfunction, his issues around that, it started when he started watching porn compulsively. Is that yeah. a common experience? Well, yes, and I'll say it really varies on the definition of compulsive. So you have people from varied uh, religious backgrounds or um, certain faith bases or whatever it is who believe that watching porn once or watching porn it, even repeatedly, even if it's infrequently, constitutes compulsive porn use. That isn't really how the word is used, but that's how they understand it in terms of their frame of reference and in terms of um, their, their surroundings and their peer group. You have other populations who are able to watch porn more freely or more frequently, and they have a different definition of what compulsive use is. The other thing that I've seen in my practice is whether or not the use of porn is compulsive seems to make a difference to the partner who's not using the porn. So, for example, I, had, I was working with a couple who, this guy cheated on his wife, uh, like, I, I don't know, lots of people. He went on Craigslist and found like a ton of people to mess around with. And in addition to that, he was watching porn all the time. And her question for me was, is he a sex addict? Because if he's addicted or if this is compulsive in some way, she thought he was rehabilitatable. But if it was not compulsive and if he wasn't addicted and if he was just a jerk, then she was going to leave. And so, so my diagnosis of whether his behavior was compulsive was important to her in terms of staying in the relationship. And so that, you know, that was interesting. What is the definition? Because that, and now that you kind of explored more the topic, now I'm thinking absolutely like, there are so many, kind of some people have this moral, like to them morality and sexuality is very connected. So like in the research, have you read anything that they, how do they define compulsivity? 
So I would love for there to be a definition of like sexual compulsivity and right. the DSM five and and you know the closest you can really get. Um, they talk about like sexually pr- problematic behaviors, kind of generally looking at orgasm and desire and things like that. They also talk about like impulse control disorders, so it might fall something within that realm. Um, so it's really hard to kind of classify where some of that behavior is. When I'm talking to people, what I'm really looking at is the degree to which that behavior is interfering with their work life, their relationships, their social life, and their own personal goals. So if it seems to me that it's interfering to a, a high enough degree it interf- and, and the client agrees to that, then that might be something that we define as, as compulsive. Again, you have to remember that the people who are functioning very well with the type of porn use that they have, they're not going to come into the clinical office right. because they will be functioning well. So, so we don't necessarily see that group of people who have problematic usage with the computer because they or with porn or whatever because they are functioning well enough to not meet that criteria of some kind of distress associated with it. No, absolutely. That makes sense. And you were talking about the infidelity. And I started thinking about that, how now in the, I was reading an article talking about how Facebook now is cited in uh, divorce papers, yes. how, how the internet kind of impacted people's like infidelity and the yes. sexual behavior outside their marriage. So what, what increases couples vulnerability to the infidelity? That is a great question. What I like to say that the internet has made the whole world sin city. And maybe that's because I'm in Las Vegas and that's, (laughs) you know, what we do. But um, one of the key issues, if you look back into the infidelity research in like 20 years ago, one of the things they talked about was opportunity. And they said that when, you know, men were working out of the home, they were the ones who were cheating more. And as women came into the workforce, you saw them sort of increase their numbers in cheating, but not necessarily as much as men. Then comes the internet, which one of the big qualities about the internet is it can be accessible to anybody. I'm accessible to you. You're accessible to me. And that accessibility for me is equal to the concept of opportunity. So now you don't have to be working outside the home to find someone to cheat with. You can do it sitting right in your home. The other thing about the internet is that it is really organized in a way to help us connect with each other. So when I'm talking to someone face-to-face and they've upset me, I can sort of hide my reaction, right? Or I can say to someone, oh, I'm looking like this or I'm looking sad because you can't see me. I can, you know, I can describe those things on the internet, but when you're in face-to-face, you can see it in real time. When you're on the internet and you're going through these descriptions and you're typing out for someone, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I look like, here's what I'm doing, there is a greater sense of self-disclosure. Right. I am describing to, instead of you looking at me and assuming I'm sad, I'm communicating to you that I'm sad. And that looks more vulnerable, right? So these internet relationships develop much more quickly than they do than offline relationships simply because of the level of self-disclosure, right? So you've got the accessibility, you've got the self-disclosure, and then for women, women tend to have affairs for emotional reasons and men tend to have more physical affairs. Well, if you're doing a lot of the self-disclosures, that's going to lead you into an emotional kind of relationship with somebody else. So that's how we started to see those numbers of women cheating actually starting to rival the proportions of men cheating just because we now have a mechanism that speaks our language in terms of having an affair. 
That is so fascinating. And I've noticed that, as you said, like, for example, I work with some of the young adult males, which is so challenging for them to kind of show their vulnerability when they are meeting, like if they are an opposite sex or their mate in person. But in computer, like when they're chatting on Facebook, they're able to kind of describe it. It's easier for them. So as you said, there is another level of kind of vulnerability there. Yes. And people don't even realize they're doing it. They just think, you know, they just think, oh, I'm telling someone I'm sad. They don't recognize the power behind what's happening in terms of those daily self-disclosures or those routine self-disclosures. And by the time you get to the end of the month, all of a sudden you feel so close to this person and it happens so quickly. And then we sort of tell ourselves, well, it must have happened quickly because this person's the one. That's not it. It happened quickly because of the mechanism, the mechanism. That is so fascinating. And as you you were talking about accessibility also is very important because then in the past, you know, if people were upset at their partners, it took them more energy to kind of go out and meet someone or talk to someone. But now all they can do is just go to Facebook or it's kind of got to talk to someone. Talk to a friend. Yeah. The other thing that happens with um, them, there are seven qualities of the Internet that we think contribute to, you know, sexual problems in couples. Um, you know, accessibility, just one of them, but an anonymity is another one and approximation is another one. So, and affordability, we used to be able to, if you were going to cheat on your partner, you would go to a date, you know, or take someone out to dinner or a movie or a hotel room. You don't have to do that now. Everything's wrapped up in one little, you know, ISP charge that you get every month. So it actually is invisible on your bill. So that affordability is a big factor. And with the anonymity, you can be whoever you want to be, right? You can, you can backspace, you can delete, you can edit your presentation to look like this person's perfect partner. And you can't do that face-to-face. And so we have the ability with the internet to be able to kind of create this persona when we're exchanging information with someone that may or may not be true, but it favors us in terms of connecting with them and connecting to the relationship. And then uh, approximation, that's another big one. We use the internet to approximate real-world situations. And so because you have the ability to be able to text and describe what you would do to someone, you can approximate a real-world situation that you really want to be in, but you can't physically be in for one reason or another. And so those are some of the big things that sort of lead couples into trouble in terms of infidelity. Absolutely. And again, I'm just fascinated with the research in this area. And I know like... It can be very interesting, especially for people who are not, as you said, like they think, oh, he or she is my soulmate, but they don't consider it that it's a kind of the medium that they use. It's because they connect it the different way that might be part of the attraction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can't, of course, tell anybody in the moment. Right. (laughs) You know, no, but it was really true love. And it's like, but they were editing their presentation just like you were. And yeah, absolutely. And here's your partner who's not disclosing to you as much verbally, but but you have deluded yourself into thinking that they are not the perfect partner because of what somebody else is selling you. So, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that people have this like edited version and the kind of best format of who they are and like social media, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. How I mean, think about it. How many times have you started writing? I'm really pissed off, and then started backspacing and saying, "I'm fine. I'll talk to you soon." The other person has no way of knowing, you know, you can't get away with that in a face-to-face relationship, but you can be whoever you want to be online. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that can be very attractive. The other thing that I wanted to talk about, which was so fascinating, I wanted to talk to someone, an expert about sexting. And I saw yeah. your article. I was like, oh, yeah. my God, <laughs> she has the knowledge and expert in all those areas I'm interested in. So based on the, I know you studied the you did the study on the college students. I did. Yes. Well, who who else is better to ask right. about sexting? <laughs> So oh. for some of us that they're older, so what is sexting and what are some of the benefits and risks associated with it that you found in your study? So you ask a really good question. A lot of the definitions about cyber sex and sexting are about messages that it, the way it's defined is it says messages that are exchanged between two people in real time. And my experience and my research, that isn't true. You can have a sexually explicit conversation with someone that is that is asynchronous. That is, they give a line, you give a line, they give another line. So it really is just the exchange of sexually explicit information that is designed to bring someone to the point of sexual satisfaction. That's that's how I define it. Interesting. So, and it could be including images or lines, yeah. so yeah. all range of things. A whole range of things, words, images, videos, absolutely. And are they like mostly college students, like younger population that kind of use this kind of a foreplay or uh, like a sexual behavior? Yes. And sadly, that's it's getting younger and younger. So you even have kids who are, you know, 14 or 13 who've said that they've received an, a sexually explicit text from someone. So we, that's something to be aware of. Certainly, it's occurring with the college students. And one of the other things we found is that people are more likely to sext after having um, some alcohol, after drinking. So obviously that's, again, going to fit more of the college student demographic than some of the younger kids. Yeah, and I'm thinking if it's hookup culture and on campuses, then after drinking, that can make many people vulnerable to be in a certain situation that they might not be there otherwise. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In fact, if you read the literature on hookup cultures, it actually says that women are at a more disadvantaged position in that because quite often, once they end up like starting to engage in the hookup, they actually don't want to follow through with it. But they feel like the guy would be upset. And so they do things that they wouldn't normally do or don't want to do because they feel like they initiated the hookup to begin with and they're supposed to complete it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just like being able to say no, it can be so challenging for younger kids and teens and young adults because they, as you said, they don't feel comfortable. They don't have the skills. As, mm -hmm. as you said, this, if they are in the situation, it just, they say, okay, maybe I let the person on. So that, that's mm -hmm. very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it is unfortunate. And I think it, you'll also see associated with a lot of college stuff like revenge sex stuff, like where if you're sexting someone and then the two of you break up, do they take that electronic information about you and share it more broadly? So there, in some states, there are starting to be some rules against the use of revenge porn. Absolutely. And that's one of my worst nightmares. <laughs> thinking about like, I'm married, but I'm yeah. thinking like, if you have some images, you know, and you exchange it with people, then you're kind of putting it out there. And like, oh, yeah. God knows what would happen with that. Absolutely. It's like, it's like toothpaste, right? Once you squeeze it out of the tube, you can't, you can't get it back in. And that's just the way the internet is. So you better make sure, you know, you're giving whoever you very, very much trust your toothpaste. Okay. And the risk, I don't want to sound like a grandma <laughs> being concerned about the, all the negative things. What were some of the benefits that you found? So some of the benefits, in addition to spicing up someone's sex life, a lot of the couples actually talked about using the internet as a way to resolve problems 
conflict management, conflict resolution. Another thing was the ability to find partners. So a lot of people, you know, are using technologies for that and using apps as a way to find people to connect with that way. And so that's tend to be a, a, a good thing if yeah. you're using yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I was thinking about this uh, around the same line is that when people are now that's meeting someone online is easier, somehow it's discouraged people to work on their social skills. For example, I have like young adults that have been working on kind of helping them with their social skills and somehow midway they found someone and they're no longer interested. Yes, right, right, because they don't have to be. Right. They've already solved their problem. So. Right. Right. Yeah. So that can be a negative side as far as, you know, meeting people online, but it can definitely can increase people's access to potential mates outside. Yeah. I mean, the good news is you have more access. The bad news is people also have more access to you. So, it, you know, it's a two way street. The other thing about the Internet is a lot of times people think that they can control what's happening. Like they can control who they're meeting, where they're placing their posts, blah, 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 blah. But, and particularly when it comes to online dating, but the research actually found that that's not true. It's this false sense of control that you have. You're actually, you're actually not any more in control of that scenario than you are if you just went to a bar and was trying to meet someone. Interesting. So it's like, so because I always tell it's more control. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So I think, part, you know, as you talk about people who are at a position where they don't want to necessarily take a risk and be vulnerable, and that's why they're using the online methodologies, right? So they don't experience rejection in in a way that they can't handle. That's going to be too much and that's going to be too real. So they put their, you know, they cast their net to be able to maybe look at a broad number of people, but are really interested in narrowing down a just one or two that are going to be really viable options. And they can do that without feeling bad, right? Without feeling like they're rejecting other people to try to get to this one person. They're casting the net wide to find those one or two. And then they don't have to really put a lot of investment in those relationships. So they think they are the ones who are in control. They think they're the ones who kind of put out this message and say, well, I'm going to continue this relationship with this one, but not with this one. I'm going to cut this one off. I'm going to block her. I'm going to you put my information here because we have a lot of sense of control on the internet. We can block people. We can prevent them from contacting us. But just because you have the ability to do that doesn't mean that you control all of your information. So that's something to be aware of. Absolutely. So it sounds like it has its own limitations as well. It does. Yeah, everything always does, I guess, right? <laughs> right, right. Again, I, I loved all your articles and they were so interesting. So I can talk about them forever, but I know that we are toward end of our time here. So if people want to contact you, what would be the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way to reach me is via email at UNLV. And my email address is Catherine, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E dot hurtline, H-E-R-T-L-E-I-N at U-N-L-V dot E-D-U. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. This was absolutely a pleasure and I learned a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day. You, you too. Take care. Okay, bye bye. Bye Thank you so much for staying with us until end of this show. I want to invite you to think about and be curious about how technology is impacting your sexuality and how can you use this tool as a way to explore and expand your sexuality and your relationship with your partner. If you're curious and would like to learn more about psychology of sex, food and drug, 
You can always check out my private practice website where I have my blogs about those topics and also my, the link to my Farsi podcast. It's www.oasis2care.com. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts and comments and feedback on this episode. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.